Greetings Grappling Fans and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, a series within the series of Let Me Tell You Something, in which I, your co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other co-host, Simon Cross, taking in turns, picking a match from the wide world and history of wrestling to talk about and maybe get into sidetracks about other aspects of life or wrestling or something about both elements that merge together and say something greater in the thematic resonance that is our artistic endeavours in this audio medium. Simon, we're going to talk about people smashing each other with light tubes. Yay! <laughs> B&Q's wet dream coming right up. So long as they're paid from them in advance, that is. What match are we talking about today, Simon? We're talking about a triple threat match between Nick Freaking Gage... Drake Younger, and John Moxley. That's right. Three names that mean a whole lot of different things. Well, one maybe not. Yeah, I guess they all mean different things now than they did at that point in 2010. So this was a match I've been aware of in the past. I remember you saying all the way back when we did the wrestling fan episode. No, no, we did wrestling on the internet, I think it was, with Matthew from Botchamania. Yep. That one of the there was a period in time when you were only interested in sort of deathmatch wrestling. More so not like the only part of wrestling you were interested in, but when you got online, that was the stuff you wanted to look up because it wasn't easily accessible to you uh, outside of online. There was a taboo nature to it. Yes. And so you did name drop CZW or CZW if we were gonna go by the British pronunciations. <laughs> yep. Although I did learn the other day from learning about what my nieces and nephews and my friends with children have told me is that children are no longer taught A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. They're taught it as A, B, K, D, E. They're taught it phonetically. Ah! So, so this would be K, Z, W. I don't know. K, Z, W. K, Z, W. K, Z, W. My cousin were down in uh, Devon. He's, uh, hey. he's not one. <laughs> But were you aware? Were you maybe this is maybe one of the few promotions that you know more about than I do, as far as like history or figures from it, or not really because I uh, know all. No, no, no. <laughs> it's it's more the fact that I I was only in it for like the gore spots at that time. But the time I was looking into it, I I was a teenager, and as a teenage male. I, I went down that stereotypical path of looking up violent things, looking up things on different websites as well. Just just that whole, like, curious phase when you're not, you know, wanking yourself silly. You're looking at odd things on the internet. Mm, mm. Otherwise known as the control your narrative audience, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know what? If Control Your Narrative came out and I was a teenager, I'd probably be slightly more interested in it. Mm-hmm. But then again, the brain's not fully formed at that stage of your life, is it? No, and apparently it's later, in later years, not fully formed for some people uh, in adult life. Or maybe certain things that they did in their adult life led to quick deterioration. CTE is a hell of a thing. Yes. So, three figures that are in different states of significance in the wrestling world and within the online discourse, I suppose, now compared to where they were in 2010. And also three, well, two at least, that will certainly draw a bigger audience, you would hope, than the one that watches this <laughs> matchup. I've been in Asda Isles 
that were more densely populated than the crowd of this match. I'm pretty sure we had a bigger audience than this like a year into our podcast. <laughs> Not much bigger. But <laughs> I, th- I think in terms of our comedy improv days, I think we've performed to a bigger audience live as well. Yeah, probably. Smaller venues, I suppose, as far as size. That's one thing that doesn't help. It's like a whole... It's an armory kind of like hall thing, isn't it? It looks like, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh... Two rows of chairs, not all of which are filled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've rarely seen these kind of audiences in a wrestling show that was, like, widely circulated outside of the early years of the indie scene, where, in more specifically in places like IWA Mid-South and the like. You'll see shows with CM Punk and Colt Cabana in 2000 that are drawing this kind of an audience, but you would hope by 2010. <laughs> but apparently, basically, what it was is that they're in uh, North Carolina, is it, or South Carolina? I'm just looking it up. I think it's North, I think. A very unusual place for CZW to perform in. Yeah. Lumberton in North Carolina at the Robeson County Fairgrounds. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Apparently, according to Cage Match, the attendance is 52. Which actually is bigger than I thought it would be based on my looking at the four sides. But I suppose, you know, 52 divided by four, or 13. So 13 to each side of the ring. That does probably add up. That that tracks. That that tracks. tracks. I was just looking at the card as well. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. This is... The wrestlers that are in this show. Go on, enlighten me. Okay, so the opening match is for the CZW Wired TV title between defending champion Drew Gulak against Rich Swan. TV doing a lot of heavy lifting there as a phrase, but go on. (laughs) Then you've got AR Fox, mainstay on the indie scene, who sort of had good and bad times, against Facade. And you've got Team Maction with Kirby Mack and TJ Mack. Against oh Maction right um, okay against DJ Hyde the owner of CZW at this point and Greg Excellence. <laughs> wow, Greg Great would be much better. Tyler Veritas versus Sabian. Sabian I know is a long time uh, CZW regular. The tag team tournament tag team title tournament qualifying match between. Danny Havoc and Scotty Vortex against the Switchblade conspiracy of Joe Gacy and Sammy Callahan. And the match before this was Ryan Slater challenging for the CZW Junior Heavyweight Championship against one Adam Cole, baby. Ah, oh, so there's a, there's a few there. There's a few. So what? Swan's now on Impact. Cole AEW, Moxley AEW, Callahan floated around Impact and NXT very, very briefly. And so we get to Nick Gage, John Moxley, and Drake Younger. I don't think anyone's taken as steep a fall from public grace in the in the wrestling fandom world than Drake Younger has in recent years. Arguably Tommy Dreamer post Dark Side of the Ring episode. I guess so. As I think well. he took more of a hit than Flair. <laughs> about it i guess you've got also tessa blanchard but she sort of had a reputation to begin with as a troublemaker yeah yeah drake younger was like one of the great happy like everyone that knew him was delighted for him cleaning his life up he i think he was a drug addict 
uh, all sorts of things. And then he manages to become very popular indie cult hero. You know, it wasn't just CZW he was headlining. He was the one of the top guys in PWG. Oh, okay. You know, like the super indie for a while. He was yeah. doing matches against Adam Cole for the world title. I think I might have had I, a... I hope he sorted his gear out because in this, he, he just looks like a bloke who uh, takes his shirt off at the park after like having a few too many tinnies. Well, he always wore shorts. He got himself into much better shape. Uh, as the as the years went on, but then he went to WWE and became a referee. Yeah, a very visible referee, a really good one as well. He was obviously so liked, particularly by Triple H, that even though he was an NXT referee, he was the one chosen to ref the match between Triple H and Stephanie against Kurt Angle and Ronda Rousey. Yeah, I think one of the reasons for that being that they often like to get those sort of ma- referees in there, especially if it was a, a match with uh, a celebrity. It was a spot with Ronda Rousey and Stephanie McMahon, where if they both kind of go blank, he can tell them what to do. Yeah. Which yeah. you saw recently in that Jay Cargill, I can't remember the other one's name. It wasn't Ty Conti. It was a. Uh, it was the. I think it was the defense she made before that, where they just both lost their place. And you can visibly see Bryce Remsburg telling them what the next spot's supposed to be. Yeah. In the past, there's been ones like Pat Patterson was the one that was refereed the Bam Bam Bigelow Lawrence Taylor match, so that he could guide Lawrence Taylor from within the ring. And during WrestleMania One's main event, he was the referee as well for that along with Muhammad Ali as the outside referee. Yeah. So again, he could guide Mr. T if at any point things fell apart. So obviously I think that was probably one of the main reasons that they had Drake. And also just, I guess, he was popular with Triple H, and Triple H was building his army of loyalists in NXT. And look where that got him. Yeah. But he just seems to have been one of many people that got brought down a a hole online and... I mean, he went hardcore into it, didn't he? Yeah, like, he's drank the Kool-Aid when it comes to, like, QAnon and all that stuff. On the facepalm thread on Reddit, QAnon has become a bit of a mainstay or some of the wild theories. One I recently saw is that Lee Harvey Oswald and Joe Biden are just uh, aliases for, like, the same cabal of people. And I'm like, what? And it's like, oh, Kennedy's still alive. I'm like, I, I, I just... I cannot comprehend the logical leaps a brain would have to do to buy into this stuff. I just can't, I can't go there. So that's Drake Younger that we've got going into this. Nick Gage, I think he's a sense that out of all the deathmatch wrestlers, I guess he's seen as Mr. Deathmatch now in the modern context. And he was there from pretty much the start for CZW. He was there in like 99, 2000, doing all these cage of death matches with zandig and everything mm. obviously he's grown in notoriety now through his exposure on national television and his cameo in you cannot kill david arquette he nearly did kill david arquette yeah he was the one that was like i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge this notion but it was just a combination of things wasn't it that he had that prison sentence for robbing a bank and he only robbed the bank of three thousand dollars and he ended up with Five years. 
I mean, I mean, think of how much the taxpayers will have had to pay for that bedroom that he's. Yeah, in, I know, you know what you're saying. Like, it's not mathematically <laughs> effective, but you can't, you can't go robbing banks. You have to set a certain. But he example. didn't even do it with like a gun or anything. He might have had a gun, but the whole notion was he wrote on a piece of paper. You know, everyone's trying to copy George Clooney and out of sight. You know, I've got a gun. Bring, give me five, three grand. Yeah. It's like. But didn't you say you did it without a mask? Well, I guess you have to have a mask not on. Otherwise, people would have been very suspicious of... Yeah. Why is there a masked man handing a piece of paper to that woman at the counter? Well, I'm sure that that's the, that's the case. It's MJF cited it when he announced him for the Labours of Jericho. So I'm trusting MJF on that one, which you probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But I suppose that with Nick Gage, then after the CZW stuff, what helped him was the emergence of GCW, and it's semi-ironic, semi-legit approach to all this stuff. And there is a level of irony behind the Nick Gage love, but yeah. there is also a sincerity behind it too. He is a cult figure. I'm very happy that GCW exists. I haven't watched a lot. I've been, I haven't watched any of it, but um, I'd like to. I like the fact that there's something out there where that sort of, that sort of thing, where you're riding the line between irony and sincerity exists i'm glad there's a dedicated space for that and it's not bleeding into other wrestling companies too much you know what i mean yeah and it's a funny amount of timing as well with it how we've said that so much of aew is like what wcw might have looked like 20 years down the line a lot of gcw is what ecw might have looked at like 20 years down the line what is old is now new again basically yeah but also turning things inside out and plugging people into odd places Obviously, that wasn't a GCW show, I don't think. But, you know, having a death match with David Arquette, but in GCW having a death match with Matt Cardona. Yeah. And then reigniting his feud with John Moxley. So, John Moxley's the one that's the big outlier here. I mean, less just over two years after this match, he's in The Shield. And he's wrestling on WWE pay-per-views. In a turtleneck and slick back hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he always had that in him. I think the the funny thing with John Moxley at this point was he was an odd fit in what indie wrestling was supposed to be at the time. He couldn't do the technically intricate, high flying stuff that was expecting that Ring of Honor style. Couldn't do an Osprey Ricochet sequ- style sequence. No, but even at the time, it was things like he couldn't do a. You know, although he did do matches with Brian Danielson, he was an odd fit. You know, he never quite felt comfortable in that world of, like, you know, he never got into Ring of Honor. But he did... Gabe Sapolsky saw all the talent in him and put him in Evolve and Dragon yeah. Gate USA. But even then, I think he said he always felt a bit out of step with everyone else. And so I think just for a means of getting attention, does he go into this deathmatch world? And it is just crazy to think this guy that will literally go to WrestleMania and was, like, top five guy in WWE at one point. I mean, literally was made the face of SmackDown when they did the roster split. There was a calendar year where I think he had the most WWE wins. I cannot remember what year that was. And, but now you wonder if he would be more comfortable doing a show in this environment than he would going back and doing a WrestleMania main event. Yeah, yeah. He, I don't think he ever got the main event. No, but no, if no. He, if he was given the choice of one of the two, I saw the closest he got to doing this sort of thing at WrestleMania 
at uh, his match with Lesnar, which unfortunately was just shut down by Lesnar going, I ain't doing all that stuff. And that makes sense for Brock because Brock doesn't need to do that stuff now. So I look at at the time, I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is really underwhelming. But now six years on and having heard Brock outside of WWE talk about it, as the businessman he is, I can fully understand why it's like, well, this, why would I do this when there's no need to do this? Yes. Although I would, if I could pick one match for Brock Lesnar to have in AEW, if, say, there was a, a gap between his two contracts with WWE and Tony Khan was able to bring him in for one match, I think I would have him against John Moxley, but it be that Brock is willing to work with John Moxley. He doesn't you know, he won't do thumbtacks and all that sort of stuff, but I wouldn't want him to anyway. But give John Moxley the match that he wanted the first time. Yeah, maybe. Personally I'd pick Omega just 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 to see it. Mm. But maybe, maybe. I don't know that they would be what two that would mesh as well. I don't know. I'm just conceptually fascinated by it. But we have gone off track here. <laughs> um, but we wanted to do it with all the three guys to put put their positions in post this match, but also pre this match. And what Moxley did do at that time was he was known as probably the best promo on, on the indie scene, I think. I mean, I didn't know much of anything about him, but I do remember seeing a, a video of him. I became a fan of him just off of a promo he did for Dragon Gate USA where he called out Brian Danielson in the gap between his firing from WWE and rehiring. And I loved it because it was just so... Well, it's funny, like around this time, he's in he's in that group, the Switchblade Conspiracy, with Sammy Callahan and Joe Gacy. And it is funny watching promo... It was more Moxley and Callahan actually, that were the regular tag team. But... Uh, they switched it around when they put Moxley into the world title scene. And it was so funny when you watched them together because you could tell Sammy Callahan was working so hard to come across as badass and cool and tough. And Moxley just was. There was no sense of a performance behind it. It's there's a really good line in The Rocketeer that got quoted in an episode of Red Letter Media's uh, when they were talking about The Rocketeer. And it's the best summary of what good acting is that I've ever heard, which is acting is acting like you're not acting. Yeah. And Moxie doesn't look like he's acting as weird as it sounds. As performative and out there as it can seem, it feels sincere within his own personality yeah whereas sammy callahan the performative nature always seemed too obvious to me trying to it was a try hard he's salieri and moxley's Mozart. yes yeah. I, I guess best wrestling characters are their personalities just notched up to the extreme and you could buy that moxley is just turned up to 11 when he is out and about in the real world like you know he doesn't do the wrestler promo cadence he'll never get caught in a watch chance as annoying as the watch chants are, they do expose the wrestler for just doing the standard promo style. <laughs> I'll say a line, respond. Wait for the crowd to respond. I'll say another line, wait for the crowd to respond. It is a bit of a trope, you're right. It needs to feel like it's coming off the top of someone's head. As like they're thinking in that moment. Great when Eddie Kingston shut it down recently. That's how you shut that stuff yeah. down. Yeah, well, Eddie Kingston's another guy that just makes it seem like he's thinking of this he's stuff real. on the spot. He, he feels yeah. real. Yeah, and Mick Foley was always great at that as well. And John Moxley 
just does this bit where he says, you call yourself the best in the world. Yep, fine, you can have it. Whilst we're at it. And it's like he's thinking of this stuff off the top of his head and he like grabs his back and he says, all your promoters, all these championship belts you're giving me, you can just get rid of them and he throws this belt away because they don't mean dick and all this money you promoters are giving me and he produces a wallet and he goes, you can all take it back because it doesn't mean dick and he throws it into the ground and he goes, I'll try and do my John Moxley voice. I don't want it. What I want is Brian Danielson's head on a stick. And that moment, what I want is Brian Danielson's head on a stick. I believe that was what he wanted in that moment. I mean, as, you know, I genuinely think that as great as CM Punk against Eddie Kingston was as a promo battle, and as great as CM Punk versus MJF was in a promo battle, and MJF stuff is performative, but it's like the best kind of performative. And it's almost like the performative aspect of it is almost true to his character, so that when he does do the little Jew boy promo, that's almost like when the facade breaks off of his character that he puts up. But when Moxley and Punk feud, and they will feud, those could be some of the greatest promos ever. You know? Oh yeah, that that will be like the touch paper, and let's just see where we end up with it. So let's get to this match. This match in many ways reminded me a lot of... It was like a turned-up version of those old WWF Hardcore Championship matches in the layout and the structure. Like, weapon spots almost immediately, going outside into the crowd into the crowd, and then outside of the arena, and doing unusual, maybe innovative spots within the environment that they're in, and then come back to the ring and work the way through to the finish. I think you're right with one key difference goofiness there was goofiness in those hardcore title matches that's what I'm saying Al Snow was running around with a mannequin yeah 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 that's my point WWE feels goofy these guys feel like even though it is a bit it's silly what they're doing they treat it so seriously it sort of it sort of gets stuck in this never zone between sincere and insincere for me I disagree I think there's deliberate comical elements to it I think it's intentional. And I also think because they were doing that, I think they felt like because they were in front of literally 56 people like this, there's probably a bigger staff there if you count like people working the concession stands. Yeah, those two women. <laughs> there's probably as many people working the show as there are people attending the show. And so they're just like, fuck it. Let's go crazy. Let's go buck wild and let's have fun. I think that everyone, despite getting light tubes smashed all over them, I think all three of them had a lot of fun with this match. And within it, there is moments of humour, like Drake Younger holding Moxley by the head and them seeming to run half the length of this <laughs> That Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, there's more wrestling moves in this Falls Count Anywhere all over the place stuff than you expect in these wild, bloody, violent matches. Like, Drake Younger's doing La Magistral cradles. Yeah. <laughs> and small packages. That that and figure four. Moxley puts on a figure four leg lock. Then someone puts someone in a sharpshooter. You know, it's broken up by light tubes to the back. But you know, yeah, there are like nice wrestling spots in it, and the spot along the long uh, beer hall style table. That's a fun spot. Yeah. Well, when as well when one of them get they backdrop Drake Young onto that tape. One of the on the bench. Oh, table. the blood. And the blood puddle yeah. that's left underneath, uh, left off of his back is absolutely disgusting. Little 
little bits of flesh. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. But I think there's always been that element of humour to some of these matches. I've never... I, I don't watch a lot of these matches. It's not really my cup of tea for the most part. But I do remember seeing a clip once of Necro Butcher. And it is, they've gone, the brawl's gone all the way to the outside. And Necro Butcher just finds like a pile of rocks. And just starts throwing rocks at his opponents. <laughs> <laughs> like a school school playground fight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I guess that's... I don't really know how to, if, through what lens to view it. You know what I mean? I think that's my problem, uh, CZW. Like, is it in on it? Is it not in on it? With GCW... And I, to go back to the point I made about GCW earlier, like you know that they're in on it enough, so you kind of can enjoy the ride with it. Like I said, I think because of how small, like the show is farcical already in the sight of how many people are there, and it's small, you know, and it's all like it was a dumb venue for them to book. I think they booked it on the day of like the county fair, so you know, it was, yeah, it no was one's like going to be around. Yeah, yeah, it was like they double they booked themselves against something ridiculous to book yourself against in that time. In, in a strange town to have put it on in, like, Lumberton's, like, a dumb place to have booked it. It's like um, put, trying to put a TV slot in against the Super Bowl. Just, just take the L. Put, put on a Golden Girls repeat. Take the L. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I think, that, though, again, I think that can be liberating to people. Like, um, some of my best Edinburgh shows were literally in front of, like, two people. And, you know... The majority of my shows were in front of two people. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, we can suddenly... We're almost in on it together. We're, like, it's a collective thing. And the crowd is bloody receptive to everything. And then when it goes out, the crowd seems to double in size. <laughs> it's like um, when we did uh, the comedy improv workshops. Sometimes... I mean, I guess there's another element to it because they were it. They were obviously fellow improvisers, but what, the practice sessions sometimes you just felt far more freer because you weren't performing to like a big room. You were just performing to a few people. Yeah, and also because of who we were. Yeah, there was a decent chance that we were going to get more unusual requests. We weren't going to get the usual spatula suggestion for a household object. <laughs> you know, you were going to get something unusual. You know what? Actually, I remember the moment the rich B in our group, said that the moment he knew he'd, uh, like, I was someone that was going to have, that was, we were going to have some fun with, was when I, no, it was when I, um, <laughs> it was when I, it was when I, uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that gear change. <laughs> it was, it was when we were doing a game where you had to name an element for as long, it was like last, you know, you'd be off when you couldn't think of something. It's not really an improv game, but I think it was just a fun game. It's more of a uh, quick thinking game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people are saying boron, calcium, you know, lithium, whatever. And I said Mia Jokovic. And that oh, the was... fifth element. <laughs> yeah. You cheeky bastard. <laughs> he said that was the moment he was like, okay, we've got a keeper here. That was like first week or two that I was Yeah, there. yeah. So yeah, I think because it was like there's moment like the commentators are having fun with it as well, and the commentators are also because they're in a seated set position, they probably couldn't move with the mics. They just go off like you can't hear them for ten minutes when they're outside because they literally haven't seen what's happened. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> when they come like, back, it's like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, I don't know why this guy's like this, um, but there was there was one quote I there was there was one quote from a. And the commentators I had. And then another quote from one of the crowd one of the people in the crowd, which also shows that the crowd was in on it too. 
He goes, the gentleman with the affordable carpet cleaning t-shirt loves this. <laughs> like picking out individual audience members. And this is another moment where they're fighting in the <laughs> in the crowd. In the out on the outside, they're on like the they're in the grassy area. Someone in the crowd just yells out, "Watch out for fire ants!" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're, ha- they're they're having fun. They are having a yeah. good time. Is it? F- they're wrestling at one point. They're wrestling in a pickup. Yeah, truck. like it's almost a parody. Yeah. <laughs> well, it does sometimes feel like a parody of garbage wrestling. It does feel. It's just like silliness, basically. I guess, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm just viewing it too seriously, and that's that's my problem, not not their problem. But yeah, it's it's just some it's just some stuff, really, isn't it? Another funny moment. This was like you know how there's just standard spots that become the thing to do for years, and then they become so cliche that they end up stop doing them. One of them was at the time was to show that the staple gun was real and they weren't faking it, that they would staple a dollar onto their head. And so at one point Nick Gage gets a dollar stapled onto his head and then it falls out and Nick Gage quickly grabs the dollar and pockets it. Puts it, in his pockets <laughs> it. And people in the crowd notice and laugh. You know? well, that's quick thinking. That's that's a Yeah. That's a good thing. Like they know how to work an audience. They just do it through this medium. Yeah, they, and they play with the crowd. Like I said, they work with the crowd uh, in the environment. Like at one point, John Moxley's in control, and he starts hearing people talking about Gage is coming, Gage is coming, and then he's just like looking around <laughs> trying to figure out where the fuck he is. And they had a lot of space to work. You're right. I guess it was just like a fun playtime for them, really. Yeah, this was another line I wrote down when the when they're coming back to the crowd, <laughs> coming back into the venue, and the commentators can go. As they're coming in, the crowd starts chanting, this is awesome. And one of the commentators says, well, what we missed was clearly awesome. (laughs) (laughs) The commentary team aren't bad. Well, it's just one of those things with the indie scene where they like, they're not trying to become full time. You know, it's like your, I don't know, maybe your your least favorite commentary ever, almost it seemed like, was the uh, CM Punk, Eddie Kingston... Dave Prezak commentary for the Necro Butcher Samoa Joe match where they just are talking about like random people oh yeah yeah does have some great lines in it though like uh, when uh, Samoa Joe tries to suplex Necro and Necro lands like head first on the concrete Punk just yells out somebody's gonna die (laughs) oh yeah it's not a yeah it's not for me when it's too self self referential but well what bothered me was just the the need the light tube stuff just wasn't interesting to me. It was just the same stuff over and over again. There wasn't even a variety of weapons. It was like with the innovations of what they were doing with actually bringing in wrestling moves and having fun with the environments. You just thought they would have had a bit more fun with the weapon. One rules. of the things that first fascinated me about CZW was during their ultraviolet ultraviolent tournament of death when it was covered in Power Slam. Was the idea of the fans bring the weapons match? Whether it be a uh, thumbtack-filled cardboard cutout of Paris Hilton, an old TV set with the screen replaced with light tubes, or like a pram with, I don't know, a lawnmower blade on the front of it. Like, the fan interaction gave you a wackiness which wasn't the conventional weapons. Table, chair, ladder, kendo stick, bin. Take those five weapons out and you've taken about 85% to 90% of all weapon shots across all promotions ever. They have variety. They do something different. And that's what fascinated me when I was looking at it all in Power Slam. Yeah. And I always wonder why do they why do they go to the fluorescent tube so much? Is it because of the explosive sounds they make? Because, you know, I remember in The 40-Year-Old Virgin at one point, they're doing this thing in a scene where, like, 
Steve Carell's complaining about something they've done, and they're like smashing light fluorescent tubes for the. Is that uh, Rogan and Rudd doing that? in the background yeah, yeah well one point I think Seth Rogen literally smashed it against Paul Rudd's leg oh and he complains because it's got the white mark on him yeah, yeah 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 so it's like are these actually hurting that much but then you see Drake Younger's back and you're like well yes yeah. they are he needs a decent pair of trousers <laughs> yeah and yeah and it's just well, to what extent to what end are you doing this for why are you bleeding all these buckets for it's because of their love of what they were doing and they are Creative minds, they even adapt in the in the scenes. Like I said, like Mox, you know, Nick Gage with that dollar falling off of his head and him pocketing it. That's like, that's a sign of a quick wit. You know, in an improv group, you can see someone that can think like that. And so that's probably one of the reasons why Nick Gage stuck out to most other garbage wrestlers or whatever. Like he could do, yeah, he could be more inventive and creative and have more fun with it. And we see it to this day. You know, he's been doing it for 20 years now. And he's only now, like, hit his peak. It's no different to all those wrestlers who can do, like, intricate athletic sequences on the indies. Because everyone does them, you don't stand out by doing that. You stand out by having character. Yeah, but you do have to have physical gifts. And I think Nick Gage has definitely got much more broken down as time's gone on. Like, he can't do... Like, he moves awkwardly. I don't know if he knows how to distribute his weight for a body slam or anything as easily as that anymore. you basically just got to try and lift him up as best you can. Uh, He's obviously walking wounded over time, but he's as popular as he's ever been. And he, but, he, but he improvises as well, like they set up a table spot in the match, and he can tell this table's not going to support the weights, so I'm not going to do a spot where we're both standing on the table and I'll pile drive you through it. Instead, he goes for a top rope move, and during that time, like the table... The table, yes, yeah, one. and like... But he knows how to do it. But it's again, it's that sign of a, of, of a brain working acting. He's not just there for the sake of doing it, like some people will do for sadistic reasons. And I think... I watched the Vice documentary that was made a few years ago about the where they went to the Tournament of Death. I think it was like 2015 or something. And there is thought that goes into these things. These people are proud of their art form. It, and they are performance artists in so many ways. Whether the crowd gets what they're going for on the artistic levels is another matter entirely. But there are also people that are there just because they're sort of sadists that get a thrill yeah. out of it. Well, that's the thing with art, though. You just produce it and... It's, you're at the mercy of how people interpret it sometimes. Yeah, well, it's like how critics don't like horror films for the most part, but now that there's like these these art forms that they're a bit more a bit more obvious with their artistic elements that the term elevated horror became a thing. So I wonder if you could ever get to the point where you've got like elevated ultraviolet matches. <laughs> Maybe that's what you would say the CM Punk MJF match was. Like, it has the thumbtacks and everything, but it's more emotionally... <laughs> yeah, but they, they set the table for a long time, obviously, with that. They, mm. they pulled from mm. the past a lot. I don't think that they needed the thumbtacks. I just could do without... I would like a one-year moratorium on thumbtacks in wrestling. Not even because I'm freaked out by the more people trying to claim that they're faked. I just think they're used too much. Let's find the new weapon that everyone's going to start using because there was a time when people weren't using light tubes and then like light tubes took over from barbed wire. Sheet glass was also became very popular after a, at a certain point and Lego. Lego, but that's the comedic aspect of it, you know. It's just things go in and out of popularity. Like I said, no one's getting dollar bills stapled onto their foreheads anymore. Maybe it was when it was done in the wrestler. It was like, well, this is Chuck as mainstream the as it can yeah, get. Well, if they're doing yeah, it. Maybe. Uh, you're right about thumbtacks, though. Thumbtacks need to be, like, someone needs to pump the brakes on those, especially at AEW. Every hardcore match they do yeah. has thumbtacks. 
do something else. The thing that freaks me out as well about light tubes is just that I, I, all that stuff. I was we were talking about if they did the tournament of death again, and we had the funds, would we go and make like a video of it? And that would be fascinating to just have to go to somewhere in the middle of Delaware and do it. Although they haven't done a tournament of death in a few years, obviously because of COVID, so maybe they won't. But it would be fascinating. But I would just be terrified of being caught in the crossfire. You know, they they swing these things and the things flying all over the place. If you're in the first couple of rows, you know, there's there's bringing your, your waterproofs to a fucking SeaWorld oh, show, I... and then there's you know, yeah. Wearing armor plating for like a tournament of death event, you know, dressing up like Bryce Remsburg for the uh, yeah. barbed wire death uh, time bomb match in AEW. Uh, you can tell that uh, Paul Turner was frustrated that he didn't have those special gloves to save himself having to get a thumbtack in the hand whilst counting. Mm. Whereas Aubrey just bloody did it, the crazy cow. <laughs> Well, women just ha- women just know how to deal with pain a lot better than blokes do, for the most part. Yeah, there is some thought, but there's also no Chekhov's gunning in this match. Yeah, there's no things being set up at the start to be paid off later on. But there is, you know, there's there's thought in it, but not as much. This was a point in the road, like I said, like there was a death match stuff that really started with CZW because ECW never really went that far, and that was how CZW and XPW tried to step away from, like, make themselves even further than ECW. And an IWA mid south, and then the point where they merged together in the Samoa Joe Necro Butcher match, and then split off yeah. into it again. And like you got Necro Butcher getting booked in Ring of Honor for a couple of years off the back of that with the ROH versus CZW feud, mm. and now you got it to the point where there was a death match between Chris Jericho and Nick Gage on AEW television, and a lot of these spots were in it. You know, sheet glass. They were there light tubes in it. There were, weren't there? And obviously, as well, AEW tried to do the exploding barbed wire death match, but you know, we'll 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 talk about that at another date, maybe. That'll have to get covered at some point, I imagine. Yeah, it seems like that was like like their nadir at the time in 2020, and they've just constantly been on upswing really ever since. That capped off the worst pay per view they had because that was the one with the Matt Hardy horrible, horrible yeah yeah yeah. And when they continue the match, their worst medical misstep, definitely, as well. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. is, whilst, And everyone always says, oh, you complain about the thumbtacks and the barbed wire and the blood and everything. But it's not those that screw up a wrestler's career. Those are superficial wounds. What screws up their careers are the suplexes on the back of the head and the neck. Yeah. And Skin's a lot easier to heal than the brain. Yeah, and, and they've got a good point about that. But it's still there's, there's that icky... Um, com- it's more visual discomfort yeah it's more explicitly visual explicit in so many other ways you're right there is like a gore thing and maybe that's to go back to what i was talking about when i first got fascinated by this style of wrestling it's the visual element of it it's like oh oh there's there's a visceral violent nature to this it's different to what i perceived at the time as a teenager oh these guys are just playing it safe it's not like there's not a realness to it it's just it's just wrestling. Like, there, there was a part of my brain that did think that. Like, I don't know, maybe like a subconscious part. But mm. Well, yeah, and to be fair as well, the, the part that upset me the most in the whole match was when Drake Younger hit Nick Gage with a steel chair to the head, unprotected, and he hits him like eight times before Gage goes down. Yeah. Again, it's, it's one of those things. I think if I watched that at the time, I'd be like, oh, that's cool. Like, oh, yeah, violence. Now especially 
in general with what we know about CTE, that's that's just not great. And one of the last things as well, this was to a surprise of a lot of people, especially given the size of the venue, the title changed hands. John Moxley had been like a perennial champion in all the indie promotions he was going to at the time because he was the guy that did these great promos and was obviously... To be fair to CCW, as much as people can mock it, it was a talent spotter. A lot of people have come from CZW. Adam Cole started off in CZW. And he's not ashamed to admit that. And they find these talents. And, you know, like I said, two years after this, he's in the biggest faction, given the biggest debut. And, like I said, the best artistic creation of the WWE of the last decade of the 2010s was The Shield. And that they could see that. I mean, again, there was always that talk of, the plan before this was for him to debut and feud with Mick Foley until Mick Foley couldn't get the yeah. thing done. And that would have been intriguing with, with what we knew from this as well. But they just never did that. I'm so glad that's an interesting. Yeah. We... Well, yeah, because then he wouldn't have come in with the shield. Yeah. But that would be a fun alternative multiverse universe to go to and see what, what happened to Dean Ambrose in that world. What if Chris Hero was uh, the third member instead? Point. I don't know who they would have had as the third member at that time. It was like, it's weird when you try and do those alternative bookings. Like when Randy Orton won the title and Triple H turned on Daniel Bryan, I thought before it was the authority, I thought, well, the logical thing to do now would be to have the new evolution with Triple H in the Ric Flair role, Randy Orton in the Triple H role, and get two others in the Batista Randy Orton roles and call it evolution. But I couldn't think of two in that sort of NXT class at the time that were the right fit for it. It's like when um, Shawn Michaels and Triple H reunited with DX. Part of me was like, oh, they could bring a couple of people in and like elevate them. Well, they got a hornswoggle. <laughs> well, if there's a man that needs elevation, mm. it's hornswoggle. Mm. But yeah, this is one. This is my last note uh, I said about this. Uh, battle over a slam into the light tubes. Moxley hits a cutter on Drake. Gage then surprises Moxley with a pile driver and gets the three counts. Gage is the new champ. He goes into the crowd to celebrate. And someone offers him a beer, and he refuses it. And I said, maybe that's because it was clearly already opened. So, you know, he's many things, but he's not unhygienic. <laughs> Gotta have your lines. Gotta have your principles. Yeah. I love that idea of, like, um... I always wanted to do a sketch based on this, actually, off of a joke that Jim Cornette made about how when Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels got into a real fight backstage, Jerry Lawler was in the toilet as this was kicking off. And I think Jerry Lawler was the first one to try and break it up. And Cornette joked, I don't know if he wiped <laughs> going But I love that idea of... I tried to try and write a sketch about it where uh, someone's doing that but they're like doing, going through all the rigmarole, like washing their hat, and like they yell at him to wash his hands before he gets back, gets in to break them up. Uh, yeah, it's 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 the whole parcel thing, isn't it? When you're on the toilet and that the door knocks and you're like, ah, oh. yeah, oh, classic. Anyway, well, let's not go down into that part of <laughs> as unhygienic as everything else has been. Let's not talk about that, Simon. If people want to get in touch with you to talk about some more deathmatch wrestling or other hygiene tips, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm sending a Simon Cross free. Free for the number of classrooms that could have been lit with all those light tubes that got broken. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A as in the second letter in Mark. Oh my God, when I heard that back the other day when I was editing... Jesus Christ. The second letter in Mark is the A, 
And the first letter in Nick is the N for Lorcan Mullen. You can, uh, that's uh, my email address. You can get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And if you feel like throwing a few pet, a few dollars stapled to your face, don't send us your face. Just send us the dollar to our Patreon at patreon.com slash lmtyspod. And you might be able to finance us taking a trip to Delaware to see a tournament of deathmatch and coming back and reporting on it. For the next episode, we were planning to do a Silver Screen Visions, and that will be the next one after this, because we wanted to address the big news story. And as we've always said, we don't like the up-to-date stuff so much. We want to talk about the more holistic elements of wrestling. But... Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, was too big a figure for us to not do something about him. And instead of doing what we did for Brody Lee, which was in a, a special match of the week, we thought we'd just talk about the whole sort of career and Scott Hall and what he represented. Um, a significant figure. There's been debates over his influence or, you know, semantic elements of some of the hype, of some of the descriptions of him. But he was a big figure in wrestling in more ways than one. And so we thought we'd do an episode where we... Discuss him, because we, we love to do ones about individual wrestlers uh, every once in a while, and we would do one of those anyway. But we're interrupting our regularly scheduled programming, uh, assuming there's no five-star matches in between, to talk about Scott Hall, a.k.a. Race Remote. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week. <laughs>